Welcome here again. Uh, my name is Matt. I'm pastor here of Tri-City, and uh, it's really great uh, to have you here with us. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time today or haven't been uh, back in a while, we are sort of coming to the end of our Easter series. Now, our Easter series, Easter was a while ago, but we extended it. Uh, we kind of went um, uh, into the, the stories after the resurrection, just calling them resurrection stories. And so we find ourselves now uh, at the very end of the book of Luke, uh, Luke 24 is where we're going to begin, and then we're also going to jump into the book of Acts, uh, because there in the book of Acts, both of those um, moments describe the time when Jesus ascended from earth up into heaven, which is the topic of our time uh, this morning. So I'm going to pray, and then uh, we'll dive into our, to our text and see what God has for us this morning. Uh, Lord, thank you. For this place, thank you for uh, this opportunity as a people. We can, we can come, uh, Lord, we can praise and worship you. Uh, we can have some a good time of, of fellowship and community. Uh, but most importantly, Lord, we can uh, hear from you through your word. And I pray, God, that that would be the case now. I pray, Lord, that as we uh, seek to understand uh, this uh, really momentous event, uh, Lord, that we would come to understand you more and also that we would understand ourselves uh, as your people or just as human beings even more in light of it. And so I pray now for your blessing. Give us ears to hear and open hearts uh, to what you are saying. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, human beings, I think, have always been fascinated uh, by uh, the heavens, uh, by the, the stars, right? We look up since the time that the stars were made and that people were made, we probably looked up. And we were inspired and intrigued by what we saw up there. Just the vastness of space, right? the beauty of the stars. Uh, it's, it's no surprise then that we, we have this comparison, this kind of connection we make between heaven, which is the, the supernatural dwelling place of God, and the heavens, which is you know, a word we use just for the, for the sky. And we have this idea that that because the sky is, is majestic and beautiful and kind of awe-inspiring, that there's a natural connection with, with heaven itself. There are some other reasons, though, as to why we would make that connection. Uh, in the Bible, we see time and again through the Old Testament that uh, when God speaks, it is generally from, from above. Right? He speaks down to us who are here on earth. We also have some stories where we see this interesting dynamic of heaven being a place that is above us. Uh, Elijah, if you know that story, a chariot came down from heaven, picked him up, and went, went up into the sky, into heaven. Uh, there's another fascinating moment with, in Jacob's life when he's asleep and he wakes up, kind of has this vision of a, of a stairway to heaven. Right? There's angels coming up and down from earth to heaven, kind of a connecting point, which is very important for a couple reasons. The first is that because of that image, we were blessed with a powerful rock ballad by Led Zeppelin called Stairway to Heaven. And I just think, I think it's probably impacted all of us in some way. So there's that. But also we have this idea that like heaven is, is a place that we could go and it's above us. There's this, this sense of relationship between heaven and earth, which is important because in our text today, we see that, that in fact, Jesus he made a transition between these two places, that he moved from earth to heaven and that he was taken up. And so our, our question this morning, our, our pursuit is, is what, what does this tell us about Jesus? The fact that he ascended after 
his crucifixion, resurrection. He was here for a while, and then he went up into heaven. What does that tell us about uh, who he is, about the work he's doing now? And also, what uh, implications does it have for us? Apart from the fact of realizing that it's true, does it, does it have any meaning for us? So those are the kind of questions we're going to delve into. And as I said, we're going to look at uh, two texts, uh, because the Luke text, first of all, they're both written by Luke. Luke and Acts, they're kind of, uh, Acts is a sequel, really, to Luke. But also, in Luke, we get sort of a brief account of the event, and then in Acts, he gives it more detail. So I thought it'd be good to look at both of them. So if you have your Bibles, you can look at Luke and then Acts, but it'll also be up on the screen. And so we're going to read first uh, the, the passage from Luke, which says this, in verse 50, And he, that is Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So there, a very brief sort of account for what happened. But then we also find this in the beginning of the book of Acts. Uh, so when they had come together, that's all the disciples, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So that's the two texts. Gives us a pretty detailed account of what exactly happened. And we're going to ask and answer two questions about this event. Firstly, uh, what are the details of the ascension? Like, what exactly is going on here? Is this literal? What, what, what's happening? And then secondly, uh, where we'll spend a bit more time, is what is the meaning of the ascension? What is the meaning for Jesus, and what is the meaning for us? So firstly, uh, the details. Uh, first thing to note is that this, this was not a surprise. This was not sort of a, a last-minute decision on Jesus' part. This was always his intention. His exit strategy was always to return to heaven after he had come to earth and lived a perfect life and then been crucified and resurrected. Uh, for the disciples, though, this was a bit of a surprise. I mean, Jesus didn't teach that much on the fact that he was going to depart. You see a few hints of it uh, when he's transfigured on the mount with Moses and Elijah. There's a line where he, they're talking and it says they're talking about his departure. So there's some sense that he's going to be leaving. There's another part where he's before the, the Jewish council and they're, they're you know, grilling him, you know, are you the Christ? And he has this line where he says, uh, but from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And so there's this sense that Jesus knows where he's going, but for the disciples, they didn't think this was going to happen. If you look at their, their question, right, Acts uh, verse 6, so when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Um, the kingdom to Israel. This is what they were hoping for. And if you can imagine, this is 40 days after Jesus was resurrected. So 40 days is a pretty long time, right? Day after day, a couple weeks in, Jesus is appearing to disciples. He's having conversations. He's eating with them. 
they probably would have thought this is just going to keep going. And it's great. I mean, Jesus is resurrected. Now, the kingdom, right, the kingdom of Israel that we've been hoping for, right, the kingdom of God is going to come to pass. And so he calls them out to this mountain, and they think, yeah, this is it, finally. And once again, they're wrong, because they are usually wrong. So uh, he says, no, he said, it's, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. This is verse 7 and 8, that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. So he basically says, no, this is, this is not the time. In fact, uh, you're asking the wrong question because you're not going to know the time when the kingdom will come. That's, that's the father's business. He has fixed that already. Your job now is to go and be my witnesses into all the world. And we see that in every, you know, the gospels where Jesus says, go and make disciples. It's the last thing he tells his people to go out into the world. And then I think it's, it's funny because probably as he said that, Right? You know, some of the disciples, probably Peter, was about to say, yeah, but, and just as he said that, he's up into heaven, right? And they're like, oh, didn't get to ask him. He was with us so long. He's gone all of a sudden, right? And as he goes, you notice the posture. He, he has his arms outstretched. He's blessing them like an Old Testament priest, and he gets lifted up into heaven. But notice the details. He, he first goes into a cloud, and then from that cloud is taken into heaven. Now, uh, it's not a rain cloud, Right? It's not a communal, it's not one of those clouds as the names, I can't remember. It's not a thunder cloud. Uh, it, it's a cloud, though, that would have been familiar to them. Because in the Old Testament, we see uh, when God manifests himself, when he comes into the presence of people, it's, it's always in a cloud. Right? When Moses is on the top of Mount Sinai, there's a cloud surrounding the mountain. Uh, the Israelites are led through the desert by a pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, so... When the disciples looked up, they would have, I think, made that connection. It's, it's meant for us to make that connection. He's going up into the presence of God and then taken into heaven itself. And then there's this great moment where uh, they're looking up in the sky and then these angels appear next to them, right? Have you ever been in that situation where someone's looking at something? You're like, what are you looking at? And they kind of come and say, hey, guys, what are you doing? Right? Don't look up in the sky anymore. Don't you know that Jesus is going to return Right? It says, um, he was taken from you into heaven, verse 11. He will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now that's helpful because what the angels are saying is you don't have to spend your life looking up into the sky waiting or wondering what is going to happen next. We know what's going to happen next. In the perfect timing of God, Jesus will return. And we know how he will return. He will return from the sky, uh, in bodily form. That's, that's the really interesting thing we sometimes forget, is that the incarnation was not a temporary thing. That as Jesus took on flesh, it, it, he's in heaven right now with the body that he was resurrected in. And we know this because uh, in Revelation 19, we have a picture of Jesus' return. And he comes down from heaven on a white horse, He's no longer the, the child, meek and mild. He is now the, the conquering king, and he is in his body still. And so that moment where he goes up into the sky is meant to, uh, to sort of tell us, to, for us to anticipate how Jesus will return. But the whole event crystallizes, sort of clarifies for us what's going on in this period before he comes back. Jesus is up in heaven. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But for his people, we are here on earth, and we're not just waiting around. He's very clearly given us some work to do. 
And uh, the book of Acts starts with the ascension because then the whole rest of the book is all about his disciples doing what Jesus told them to do, to go out into Jerusalem and to Samaria, Judea, to tell everyone the good news. And that hasn't stopped, right? We here, we're doing the exact same thing. I mean, if you're with us at Easter, uh, it was, I hope, just a great day, a time to celebrate, a time to celebrate the good news of Jesus crucified and resurrected. Uh, We had baptisms, uh, life changed by faith in Jesus. But the other reason it was a good day is that we had an opportunity to invite people in to hear that message, that that's what Jesus told us to do. It's good to recognize that as a church, we are inherently missional. We always, wherever we are, wherever we go, if you are a believer in Jesus, um, you have a a mission from Jesus, which is to go and be my witnesses, right? To do it not in an annoying way, right? You don't have to put little tracks on everyone's, you know, desk at work. You have to do that, but, but you can let people know, hey, you know, here's what my life is about. Here's the hope that I have. Because the message is one that transcends the difficulties of human experience. So, the the details are, I think, fairly clear. Jesus is in heaven. We're here on earth. We're to do his ministry. But what's the meaning of it? Or or what's the the importance of it, both for Jesus and for us? Are there other implications, other things that we benefit from knowing this and from the fact that Jesus is in heaven? So that's the second question. What is the meaning of the ascension? And we're going to look at it in in two parts, two answers. Uh, First, the exaltation of Jesus and then the heavenly ministry of Jesus. So first, the exaltation. Um, In the ascension, it's very easy for us to simply think that this is about a a transition, a movement of location from from earth to heaven. But the language is not just about a spatial change. It's also about a change in status. The the language is he was lifted up, he was carried up, and there what we're really seeing is a, a movement of Jesus from the humility from the weakness of humanity to a place and position of ultimate power and authority. And we know this because um, it's described, the place he goes to, like he doesn't just go to heaven to kind of hang out. He's not just there hanging out with the angels and and he's there waiting for the time when God the Father will say, okay, now's now's the time you go back down. No, he went there with a specific purpose. And we see that in, in where he went. Uh, he went to the right hand of God. Look at this verse in 1 Peter. This is helpful. Uh, chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. And so his position is one of ultimate authority. Uh, even here on earth, uh, sitting at the right hand of someone is, is a position of authority and honor and power. And in the case of Jesus, we see that all uh, angels, authorities, powers, they've all been subjected to him. Now, the interesting thing is that this is not a new position for Jesus. He's the son of God, the second person of the Trinity. For eons past, he had occupied that position. So it's not like he, he kind of earned his stripes and then went up to heaven to sit in that position. That was where he began. And he came to earth to take on human form to achieve our salvation, in going back, his nature has not changed. He is just as much God as he ever was, but there is more glory for him as the risen Christ. It's not that that he's changed, but now 
His, his fame is, more people are aware of him. The whole world is now telling the story of what he's done. And so there is a sense in which he has a greater amount of glory, even though the nature of it is, is not different. Uh, I think of it like this, just to kind of understand the dynamic. Um, we've been watching a lot of Chef's Table, and so I'm going to give you a chef illustration. Um, imagine a chef uh, in some small town in Italy. And this is a brilliant chef. I mean, everyone around knows that this is, this is the best. His food is delicious. Just people come time and again. But there comes a point when the chef decides, you know, I, wanna, I want to go and make a name for myself. And so he goes to the, to the big city, goes to Rome, and opens up a restaurant. And before long, I mean, people recognize how brilliant this chef is. They, they come from far and wide. They, all his dishes, all the weird things that taste fantastic. Uh, he, bid, you know, he gets accolades and awards. He's written up in food magazines. And now all of a sudden, all over the world, people are talking about this restaurant and this chef. Now, when he, when he goes back to his hometown, he hasn't really changed. He, he's still the, the guy who made the great pasta, or you know, all the stuff they make there, the pizza, the amazing. People just flock to his restaurant still. His nature has not changed, but... The, the, the glory that surrounds him has kind of changed because now he's on a, a worldwide stage. People are speaking of his name all over the place. You would, in a real sense, say he had made a name for himself on the world stage. It's kind of like that with Jesus, except that he didn't come to earth to make a name for himself. He came to earth, and in doing so, God the Father bestowed upon him the name that is above all names. It was in his sacrifice that we better understood his nature as a merciful and sacrificial God. We see this uh, in in the book of Ephesians, where it says this in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Therefore, in light of all that Christ has done, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. At the ascension, we see all of this kind of snap together. It it syncs up perfectly. He he had the glory already. He had the authority. He, He was God, and yet he was out of that position because of his love for us. And now, in ascending to heaven, it all, it comes into perfect sync. He is exactly where he should be. He is Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. Jesus, the Son of God, the the King of Kings. And so he is exalted and honored. It's as it should be. That's essentially what the ascension tells us about Jesus. It reminds us, it clarifies for for us his very nature as, as authoritative and powerful. But you might be wondering, what is the meaning of that for us? Like, is there is there any importance? He's exalted, that makes sense. He's a son of God, but what about, what about for us as human beings? Or what about specifically for those of us who claim Jesus as Savior and Lord? Well, on one hand, we may say, well, it probably doesn't have much to do with us, except that we get to worship him as God, because he's up there and we're still down here. I mean, he said, just wait for me here. But amazingly, his very nature as the exalted Christ, it actually does have a very specific and personal uh, importance for us who believe. And I say that because we are not just followers of Jesus. We are united with Christ. 
Our very nature has changed because of our faith. And we now are no longer defined by our humanity, but also by our renewed life that Christ has given us. So I want you to look at this uh, verse from Ephesians and just think of really what it's saying here. So Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 6, um, describing our salvation. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. So that's, that's describing the state of anyone who believes in Jesus. You were dead in your sin, and yet by the grace of God you came to life. You got new life in Christ. But look at the last part. So we're alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That it's not a future tense. It's not saying you will be at some point raised up with Jesus. He's up there and that's where you're going. It's saying right now there is some aspect of your nature that you are united with Christ. From God's point of view, he looks at you and he sees you also as exalted which kind of makes your brain go a little weird because probably you're thinking, I'm, I don't feel exalted. Maybe some of you do. That's okay. But, <laughs> but m- most of the time, we don't feel that sense of grandeur. And it's a little tough to understand, well, what, is, what does that mean that even now I'm raised up with him? Well, one way to understand it, something that's helpful with a lot of things that are true about believers, is that there is an already, not yet, Uh, dynamic to our lives. If you're here and you're a believer, there are certain things about you that because you're in Christ are already true and yet not yet fully true. So for example, uh, in, in Christ, for those who believe, we are already perfect in God's eyes and yet the people in our lives will tell us that we have not yet fully experienced that perfection. Am I right? There, there are people make very clear, you know, hey, you're not there yet. But from God's point of view, he looks at us, and because of the work of Jesus on the cross, we are perfect. There's a real sense in which we're, we're perfect. We are no longer on the, under the condemnation of our sin. So we're already not yet. Uh, another example is that we are already set free from the bondage of sin, meaning it has no ultimate power over us, and yet we have not yet fully experienced that freedom because we still struggle with it. And so we're kind of in between. Uh, We are already adopted into God's family, but we have not yet received our full inheritance. In this case, we are already raised up with Christ to the heavenly places, but we have not yet fully experienced this exaltation. And so you say, well, what what does that mean? I mean, is is it kind of like there's a wrapped gift on the mantle with my name on it that I'm at some point in the future, going to open and then I'll receive from it and kind of. But it's more than that. Because it's not that the gift has, has not been opened at all. It's been partially opened. There's, I think the adoption metaphor is helpful. When a child is adopted, there's a period of time when the, the papers have been signed, they've been sealed. The, child, the nature of that child has now changed fundamentally changed. They, they had no family and now they have a family. They haven't fully experienced the family yet because the, the new parents are, are going to the orphanage to get them or there's transit, there's time. And even when they, they begin to live the life of a the family, they don't, they don't feel it fully. There's an already not yet sense of the very, their identity. And that's true for us who are in Christ. That 
that there's a new nature, a new identity that we have that means that we are no longer defined by our, our brokenness and our sin. That, that we are defined by the perfection of Christ. And as he is exalted, we also are exalted. I think this is a tough thing for us to grasp. Because when we live our lives, there's not a lot of exaltation. There's a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of, of trials and difficulty. And, and very often we get to the place, even for those of us who know Christ, where we say, man, I, <clears throat> I just don't think that there's, I don't think things are going to ever get any better. I mean, what I'm seeing, what I'm used to, I, I'm kind of, I'm just kind of spent. Like I've been praying for certain things or I've been hoping in certain things and now, now I just, I don't, I don't believe that there's anything fundamentally different about my life that the presence of God has not changed anything. I was, um, I've been reading a book uh, recently. I try to read one book a year, if I can, a uh, little bit at a time. And uh, <clears throat> I used to read more, but something happened. Uh, so uh, I read one book a year, and this book that I'm reading is I got for Christmas. It's uh, by Michael Chabon. Uh, you may know him. Uh, he is a Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist, so usually uh, an author of fiction, uh, this book is called Moonglow. I think we have a picture. I got this uh, picture not from, um, not from the internet, but this is actually my copy. You can tell because there's tea spilled all over the front of it. That was courtesy of my family. So um, this, is, this is the book, and in it, it's a really a, a fascinating book because uh, Michael Chabon, uh, his grandfather died years ago. And right before his grandfather died, he went and, um, and interviewed his grandfather. His grandfather just started telling him the story of his life. And Michael was writing all this down, and then he did research, and he, he transformed it into kind of a memoir, really the story of his grandfather's life. And much of the story is about his uh, relationship with his grandmother. Uh, they met right after World War II, and uh, his grandfather was in the uh, U.S. Army. Uh, his grandmother uh, was from France. And much of the, the book is about the mental uh, instability that his grandmother had ever since that time. And so there was one, uh, one scene which really kind of stuck in my head, which is uh, one of the times where his grandfather's going to the, uh, the mental institution to pick up his grandmother. Uh, she had been there for some treatment, and he's going to pick her up, and just before he's allowed to take her home, he has a conversation with the, with the doctor there. And the doctor, uh, you know, through the treatments and through all the discussion, has realized that there's some, there's some, uh, there's some traumatic events in the grandmother's past that the grandfather doesn't really appreciate yet. He hasn't really come to understand, and what the doctor's trying to get the grandfather to do is to try to, is to, try to delve into those things with the hopes that, that things might get better. And so I want to read to you the grandfather's response. Actually, it'll be up there too for those who are visual learners who want to read as I read. Uh, here's what he says to the doctor. He says, Doc, I'm an engineer, an electrical engineer, that's my training. Engineers spend a lot of time on what's called failure analysis. Whether you're, dealing, uh, whether you're designing or testing or building, you, you know, because you know things break. They fail. They explode, collapse, burn out. There's stress and fatigue or fracture, and you want to find out why it failed. That's part of your job. You want to figure out what's wrong so you can fix it. Maybe I used to look at my wife in that regard. At the beginning, maybe for a long time, 
wanting to know what went wrong, thinking I could fix her. But I don't want to think of her like that anymore. You know, looking for a bad capacitor. I just want to, I mean, I accept her and I, he was going to say that he, he loved my grandmother, but that didn't feel like something one man ought to bother another man with. So he says this, he says, she's broken. I'm broken, he said. Everybody's broken. If she's not in misery anymore, I'll take it. It was that last line that kind of stuck in my, my brain. She's, she's broken. I'm broken. Everybody is broken. And if she's not in misery anymore, then, then I'll take that. And by that, what's being said is that there's a certain point in which the suffering and brokenness of the world, it, it just, the hope evaporates from your life. Right? You think about what you've gone through or what people you know have gone through, and, and you've just become resigned to the state of brokenness in the world. I mean, that, that's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm, I'm tired of hoping that things will improve in our relationship, in my wife's mental state. I, I don't want to work on it anymore. If you're telling me, Doc, that whatever you did, whatever treatment, we're going to be able to survive, I'll take that. And that tends to be some of our approaches to life. Even for those of us who know Jesus. Even for those of us who would say that there is a hope beyond this life and that Jesus has, in fact, transformed us and has promised to to renew us from the inside out and and improve things to make us more and more like him. Even even for those of us who say that, there are times, there are are areas of our life where we've said, I'm just not sure I can pray for that anymore. It's, It's broken. I don't think that it will ever get fixed. And when we think about ourselves, you know, sometimes we just think, well, this is just the way it's going to be, right? I, I'm broken, or I'm not worth it, or when I try to do things, they tend to fall apart anyway, so why, why get my hopes up, right? Why should I ever think that, that there's any, going to be anything different about me? And what we need to hear, if you're a believer and those thoughts are running through your mind, or if you're saying those things, or it's preventing you from from being on your knees in prayer, you need to simply recognize that, that that type of approach to life is contrary to the word of God. God himself is saying that what defines you is not your brokenness. It's not your failures. It's not your inadequacies. It's not the fact that you've, you've messed things up time and again. What now defines you is the person of Christ. That, that in Christ, you are made new. You are redeemed. And because of his presence in your life, because of his, his spiritual work on the cross, his atoning sacrifice, you are set free from sin. But beyond that, you have the promise of exaltation. In the ascension of Jesus, we, we see a reminder, of something that's meant to clarify for us the truth about who we are. See, we have the salvation of Jesus. We know that. We have the forgiveness of Jesus. Thank, thank you, Jesus. We have the redemption of Christ, but also amazingly, we have his exaltation. I mean, that is meant to change the way that we see ourselves, that God himself looks down and he sees us as honored. He sees us as as wonderful and glorious, all because of what Christ has done for us. Last week, we heard that Jesus is the first fruits. He's been resurrected. He has his resurrection body. 
He is the first fruits, and we are the orchard. Those of us who know Jesus, we are, we are ready to be harvested. And because Jesus is in heaven, that's, that's the seal, that's the encouragement and confidence we can have that we too will one day be there. And even now, though, even now our nature has changed. We're like the child waiting in that room for his new family to come. There's something different, something inherently and fundamentally different about that child because he's been adopted, because she has a family. And that's true of us as well. Now, you might be thinking that <clears throat> that sounds really great. That sounds, I mean, that sounds encouraging. I am actually encouraged, but, but I know that tomorrow morning, I mean, tomorrow morning, th- there are things that are still present in my life that are just, they're difficult to get through. There's still challenges. And so, Matt, what, like, I mean, that, I hear that, but I, there are some things I really need help with. And that's also part of what we see in the Ascension, that Jesus has not abandoned us. In fact, rather, he has gone to the very place where he can be of most help for us. And so that's the second thing we're going to look at. We've seen the exaltation of Jesus, and by extension, our honoring and exaltation. But secondly, we see the heavenly ministry of Jesus. Um, <clears throat> the first part of it, there's two parts, really. Uh, there's the empathy, and then there's the intercessory work of Christ. Now, for empathy, uh, it's, that's a word or an experience that some of us are, very, are not very familiar with. There are some of us for whom we have not often heard very many empathetic words in our lives, right? When we were young, as we grew up, there just wasn't a lot of, hey, I hear what you're going through. Man, I can identify with that. Let me pray for you. Let me just, let me just hear your story. And so we may have got to the point where even if we're a Christian, we think, man, I, I don't know that anyone really cares or can really understand what I'm going through. And yet with Jesus, we see something very, very um, helpful, very, very different. We see this in Hebrews, talking about Jesus, who's in heaven right now. It says in Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Like, sometimes we forget that Jesus, he's up in heaven, still in the body that he lived his life in. And so when, when we come to him in prayer, when he sees us going through things, there's nothing that he hasn't experienced. He went through everything that we have been through. He was rejected. He was abused physically and verbally. He was abandoned by people who love him. He knows what it's like to be tempted in every way. Pride, anger, lust, bitterness. He went through all of those things. He knows what it's like to be exhausted and weary, to be almost overwhelmed by the circumstances of life. There is no cord of human experience that does not resonate in the heart of Christ. Which means then that when we come to him in prayer, we can be absolutely certain that that we have an understanding ear. That his disposition towards us is not criticism or or condemnation. It's empathy. It's it's, I, I know what you're going through. And I want for you what he tells us. When he was here, he said, come to me, all you who are heavy laden. 
so I can give you rest. The first thing we need to unburden ourselves with is our sin. But beyond that, there are so much, there are so many more weights, things that hold us down that Jesus says, I, I would love to carry that for you. I would love to hear what you're going through. But the challenge is that for many of us, we've gotten so used to a lack of empathy that we have some really solid walls built up around the things that we're going through. And because the people in our lives we don't feel are very interested, we think God is not interested either. But what we see here is that Jesus is. He knows who you are. He knows what you're going through. And we underestimate the healing that can come with simply unburdening our hearts in prayer, in, in Christian community, and to know that, that the people listening, they, they know what you're going through. They have a heart of empathy towards you. But there's more than only empathy. It's not only that Jesus, at the right hand of God, understands what we're going through and has a soft heart towards us. More than that, he actually takes action to help us. Um, we see a couple of times this word intercession is a word that means to step in, like to, to do something about a problem that you see. Uh, there's a couple of parts in the New Testament where we see this mentioned in Hebrews 7. It says, he, that is Jesus, always lives to make intercession for them, for his people. In Romans 8, it says, Jesus, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And so the picture, not just the picture, the reality is that Jesus is up in heaven at the right hand of God, in the throne room of God, and he is active. He's not just watching things happen in your life. He's, he's praying. He's doing things to bring help. And you might wonder, how did, what happens? How, I never see that. I don't think I see it. Like, what exactly does that mean? Well, we have a, a picture of it, an example of his intercessory work before he went to the cross. Now, you may know the story. This is when he's speaking to Peter uh, right before he tells Peter, you're going to deny me, and Peter denies that. Anyway, so this is uh, Luke 22, and uh, I'm going to read just what he says to uh, Peter, who's also, his name is Simon, Simon Peter. He's got two names. Okay. So he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So, notice the dynamic that's going on. Jesus is telling Peter, hey, Peter, Satan, he wants to mess with you, just like he wanted to with Job, right? Another example back in the Old Testament where, where Satan goes into the throne room of God and says, I want to mess with Job. Notice that Satan has to come and ask for permission. That's because God is in charge. And what's the response of Jesus? He says, I, I'm going to pray for you. Now, what Satan wants is to sift Peter. He wants to put as much pressure as he can on Peter's life so that he separates out, just like a colander, he wants to separate out Peter from his faith. That's always Satan's goal, is that he wants for us to come to such an extreme trial or difficulty or tragedy that we would say, I'm done with God, that I'm, I, I can't have faith anymore, I'm tired of it, and Satan will have succeeded because we go our own way and we think that we're better off without God. And notice the response of Jesus again. He doesn't say, I'm going to make Satan stop, or I'm going to say no to Satan. What he says is, in the midst of that trial, I'm going to pray for you. So why would, why would that be the best response of Jesus? We usually think the best response would be to close that door entirely and have no trial, no pressure. 
But what we see as an example in Peter's life is it's through the trial that Peter grows in his faith. Jesus knows that this is going to happen, right? He says, but I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, which is what happens, Peter seems to have failed, right? He denies Jesus, seems like he's abandoned his faith. And yet in time, he comes back and Jesus comes to him and he tells Peter, I'm going to build my church on you. The growth that Peter experienced was something that he needed desperately. He was a very impetuous man very proud man. And through that time of trial, he was humbled. He came to truly rely on Jesus and experience his forgiveness. And we see in the rest of the book of Acts what God does with a man like that, with someone, any one of us who has been shaped by the trials in our lives. So right now, there are things going on in your life, things that you wish weren't happening and yet continue to happen. And you may be wondering, God, what is going on? What, are you doing anything to help? I've been praying about this. I've, in my mind, this should absolutely stop. What we see here in the text of Scripture is that Jesus has not abandoned us. He has gone to the perfect place, the throne room of God, where every event in the universe has to pass through the hands of God, and right at that moment, he is able to intercede in prayer. He is able to, to, to speak into the, the plans of God and to shape us through the events of our lives. And in all of this, we see the, the heavenly ministry of Jesus, which supersedes the earthly ministry of Jesus because he is able to minister to all of us at the same time, through his spirit and through his intercessory work. And you may still say, Matt, that still sounds great, but, but man, things are really hard still. Things are difficult. You don't understand what my week's been like. But I hope you see here in the word of God that, that he does understand. He does know. And there's actually one thing worse than trials in our life. And that is trials that we go through on our own. That is suffering that is meaningless, pointless. And God's word to us this morning, for those of us who know Christ, is that that will never be the case in your life. There is never a moment where God is not at work, where Jesus is not interceding and using his power and his authority and his love for you to bring about the very best for you through the difficult things of your life. And so at the ascension, we, we see more of who Jesus is. I hope that you see more of his, his love for you and how even in the heavenly places, there especially, he is using his power and authority because he loves you, because he, he won't allow any of the other spiritual forces to shipwreck your faith. And so from this, we have an opportunity to respond. Uh, in the Luke text, the, the disciples, they go back and they're praising Jesus and they're worshiping him. And we have that opportunity as well. But my hope even more than that, in, in the quiet moments of your heart, is that there will be a sustaining faith and encouragement that comes from knowing that, that Jesus is right there with you in every moment of your day. So let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for, for the truth of the, of the ascension. Thank you, Jesus, that you, you show us in your ascended state, in your exalted state, that we also are united with you. That because of, of our faith, because of your work in our life, 
that we can claim that exalted status. And, and whatever is said about us, whatever we believe about us, is not as true as the facts of Scripture, that we are lifted up, that we are raised, that we are exalted, and that you are with us in every aspect of our life. I pray, God, that there would be uh, work done today in the hearts of those of us who are feeling so, so beaten up, so broken, so tempted to think that there is no hope for me in the future, that this is just how it's always going to be. I pray, Lord, that you would, you would minister to us through the power of your spirit and that these truths would, would encourage us and lift us up just as you were lifted up into the heavens. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.